0: There was a survey taken of uh, pastors and congregations about the books of the Bible they'd like to have uh, preached. And for pastors, the book they would least like to preach was Revelation. And for congregations, the book they would most like to hear preached on was Revelation. Um, So, I don't know why that is, maybe it's because of the amazing imagery, the apocalyptic stuff, the beasts, the crazy things that we see in this book. And if that's the case for you, I am sorry to say that we're only going up to chapter three in this sermon series, which is pretty much the most normal part of the whole book. Uh, So I'm sorry to disappoint you in any way. Uh, But I want to share with you something extremely encouraging this morning. And that is, I'm not sure how you've come to church, what mindset you've come in today, but you can be blessed, you can go home blessed by God today. Maybe you've come here uh, stressed from the week. Maybe you've come uh, anxious, tired, worn out, weary. Maybe you've come thinking, I don't really need to be blessed, I'm going okay at the moment. Maybe you have come... Uh, feeling like you're on fire for God, and you think, of course I'm going to be blessed at at church today. But have a look with me at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. We've already done that, so we're actually almost halfway there. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So whether you view Revelation as daunting or weird or uh, confusing or something mysterious, I want to say that we all have the opportunity to be blessed here today as we go home if we hear this word and if we take it to heart and if we keep it. The first thing as we hear this word today that I want us to see is that the king is coming. And you can see that there in verse one, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. God has made known this revelation, which means unveiling, as we've heard in the kids' talk. It means uncovering. God has uh, taken the layers off so we can see something that we would not otherwise be able to see. God has made this known to Jesus and Jesus has made it known to the Apostle John through an angel, and John has made it known to all the servants of Christ throughout history by writing it down for us. And automatically we are dealing here with something which is not like other texts, other things that we deal with. It's not history because history happens in the past. It's not journalism because it's not current current affairs. It is not fiction which creates an alternate reality. This is the unveiling of God's plan, things soon to take place in human history. This is not something that we have access to on our own, with our own minds. This is something that we need the creator to show to us, and that is what he's done. And notice the word soon. This is to soon take place. The Bible gives us a perspective that is not contained to the past or the present, but which opens up the unknowable, the future. But this is not speculative economics or an educated guess or something like that. This is the word of the creator to us, his creatures. And it's the events coming in the final days of this world with the crescendo being the return of Jesus. That's what we're going to see in this book of Revelation. Have a look at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, that's Jesus, and every eye will see him. The king is coming soon. The audience of this letter, the original audience, were undergoing heavy persecution. Extreme duress is what they were under. Uh, In the first century, you came to church and you didn't know if this was going to be your last day on the planet, whether someone's going to come and chop your head off. That's the kind of world they lived in. And John, as he writes this letter, is on this island of Patmos and he's not there like you would go there today for a luxury holiday overlooking the beautiful crystal blue sea. He's there because he's exiled for preaching the gospel, And this is the way that it has always been for the church of Jesus Christ throughout history. That's what Jesus promised. He says, If they hate you, remember that they hated me first. And that's what we see in the world today. The organization Open Doors suggests that one in seven Christians alive today are undergoing high to extreme levels of persecution. That amounts to 360 million Christians around the world. Just today, 13 Christians around the world will be killed for their faith. Uh, 12 Christian buildings will be attacked just today. 12 Christians will be arrested unfairly, uh, treated or imprisoned. And five Christians will be abducted today. That's just today. It's going to happen again tomorrow and the next day. Let me recount to you a recent uh, story Charlotte is a 12-year-old girl from the Central African Republic who came to faith in Jesus through her uncle. Her father's a Muslim. When he saw that she'd converted to faith in Christ, he threatened to kill her. That didn't stop her from practising her faith in Jesus. And so he planned to marry her off to a 45-year-old Muslim businessman And her church decided it's safer for us to get you out of here and you can go and live with an auntie in a faraway place. Multiply that story by 360 million and that's the picture of the global church today. And that is to say nothing about the more subtle pressures that Christians face all around the world that you might face in your family, in your workplace, in your uni. The pressure to hide your faith, to maintain a relationship, the pressure not to say certain things so that you can keep a business partner. The pressure not to raise things in a tutorial for fear that your lecturer might bring some sort of... Desire just to fit in. I was listening to the radio uh, not that long ago and they, they actually pointed out on a mainstream radio station they were talking about someone who converted to Christianity and they said maybe the reason is that they have mental health issues. This is what people think about Christians. Ever since Jesus rose again and his church has been established in the world, it's been under stress. We are under stress. And it's immensely encouraging for the church to know that Jesus is coming back to set things right. That's the purpose of this revelation. And the book ends in chapter 22, verse 7, with these words. Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Last year I was at home and I heard my daughter cry out from another room and I thought, what's going on? I dropped everything that I was doing and as I ran to her to help her, I called out, I'm coming. And as I got to her and found her with her lip caught in the electronic lint remover of all things... Uh, I was able to avert a crisis, and she is fine. Just, just to so show you know. But uh, Jesus calls out here to his distressed church, and he says, "I'm coming. Just hang on. Hang on a bit longer because I'm going to be there soon." You know, maybe today you're facing pressure in some way for you, for your Christian faith. I don't know what that could be for you today. Jesus says, "I'm coming soon." Maybe you're overwhelmed by the brutality of life in this world. Jesus says, "I'm coming soon to set things right. The end is coming. The king is coming." But we might say, well, that, that is what we talk about in church. We often talk about things like this, and is it so amazing that Jesus is coming? Why does that matter so much? The second thing here is that the king is coming for his people. It would be really miserable to think that Jesus would come back and ignore us, wouldn't it? Imagine if he came and just didn't want anything to do with you. But that's not the picture that we have in his word. That is not the promise. Have a look in verse 4 with me. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne, that's not like seven different religions before God. That is the way that Revelation talks about the Holy Spirit. It's seven is the number for completion, perfection. It's saying this is the complete Holy Spirit, the seven spirits. And this grace and peace also come from Jesus Christ. This grace and peace come from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to the church. And note how Jesus is described in the coming verses after this one. He's the faithful witness. Jesus was the preaching Messiah. He never calls us to do something that he himself didn't do. He's also described here as the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the one who has entered the new age ahead of us as the heir of that whole age. That's what the firstborn is. And he now owns that and he's bringing us into that age and he's gone there ahead of us. And he's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, worldly kings, I don't know what your picture of them is, but they sit in amazing homes, they have uh, amazing wealth, they have everything at their fingertips and they even have a history of abusing people, mistreating people, abusing their power, manipulating people and every single one of those kings has a king whose name is Jesus. Jesus is above all other names that ever have existed in this world. This is the Father, the Son and the Spirit giving grace to the church and Jesus is coming for his church. He addresses here the seven churches in Asia. Again, that number seven, it means completion. These are seven real historical churches and they stand for the complete church of God. This is in Asia, not Asia the Orient, but Asia in the Roman Empire in the first century. And read with me verse five. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I want you to imagine that uh, some tenants are living in a house owned by a landlord, and they the place has been wrecked, and they 've not looked after it at all. The windows are cracked, the carpet is is wrecked, the the mould growing in the roof and the the paint's peeling off the walls. And the landlord knows about this and he writes them an email and says, you can't pay for this. You're not able to sort this out and your rental record is wrecked for the rest of your lives because of this. So I'm going to pay, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to shield you from a terrible rental record for your life. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for his church. And what would be the response of tenants whose landlord did that to them? If he came and visited, they'd say, Thank you. You're the best landlord that we've ever experienced, and we're going to look after the house and we're going to live differently. It's what Jesus has done for his church. He's saved us from all our sins, ransomed us. With God the Father, He's paid the price that we owed for our sin. He's given His life at the cross to set us free from the guilt and the penalty and the power of sin in our lives. He's freed us. He's treated you like that. You can be totally yourself. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to try to be something you're not. You don't have to try to impress Him. He knows what you like and he's done everything necessary to sort it out so you can have a relationship with God. It's actually like going for a job interview where you know that you have the job before the interview. How good would that be? You'd be so relaxed, just totally yourself. Breathe a sigh of relief. My old barber was a Muslim, and we'd often talk about our faith with each other as he cut my hair. And I asked him once, when you come to meet God, when you die, is he going to bring you into paradise? And he said, I hope so, but ultimately I don't know, it's up to him. And that's as good as it gets for him. But Jesus does not leave us guessing, brothers and sisters. He tells us, because of his great love for us, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. Not some of the sins, Our sins, all of them. Now you might say to Jesus, well, what about that big sin that I did? The one that I keep thinking about, it's plaguing my mind. And he says, have you trusted I died in your place? And you say, yes. He says, well, it's paid for. You're freed from it. You might say, what about my addiction to internet pornography or to abusing alcohol or drugs or to inappropriate relationships. And Jesus says, will you keep turning back to me? Will you trust in me? Will you trust that that I've paid for it? Will you trust that I'll give you the power in time to change? You say, yes. Well, he says, will you free of that as well? And you might say, well, what if I can't change? And Jesus says to you, well, that's the point. That's why I came. You can't change. You can't sort it out yourself. Stop trying to sort it out. I've freed you from the judgment by my blood and I've done everything necessary so that you might break free from sin's power now. If only you will trust your life to me, says Jesus. And when I meet you, sin will be gone forever for good. There'll be none left to deal with. This is the love and the generosity of the King who is coming for us. Too many Christians think that Jesus just puts up with them. You know, like, you can be here in church and he's kind of like, okay, you can be there, but, you know, I'm kind of annoyed at you. No, no, I need to tell you, Jesus' heart leaps out towards you in love and forgiveness. Even as he sees your sin, he leaps forward to forgive that sin. He went to the cross, he he went to the hardest road so that you might not face God as the judge but now have him as your father in heaven. And he doesn't look for your report card and rake through it and say, this is okay but this isn't very good. No, he takes the report card, he throws it away, wipes it clean and he gives you a new one with his record so that you might be perfect in God's sight forever he has freed us from our sins by his blood and if you trust him he's coming back for you don't doubt it and when you do doubt it know for sure that his grace that his power is greater even than your doubts the king is coming for his people Thirdly, here we meet not only the king who is generous and is coming for his people, we also see the judge of the whole world. It is interesting that everyone really believes in a destiny for humans. It doesn't matter what your worldview is, everyone believes in some sort of destiny for the human race. For the atheist, they believe in annihilation, that one day you will cease to exist that there's no ultimate justice. Uh, most of the world's religions believe in some sort of day of reckoning, a day of judgment, and some people believe in salvation for all, no matter what you've done. When I used to speak to my Muslim barber, it's interesting that both of us believed that unless we changed our ways, that the other person was going to face God as the judge. We believe that about each other. And it gave a seriousness, it gave a weight to our conversations. Christianity ultimately says the man who came to offer forgiveness is the one who will return to judge. See with me verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. The question is, why are people mourning In this passage, what's going on? The answer is found in the line before, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. See, because while in history there are many who bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, there are many who don't. And there are many even like those who strung him up on the cross in the first place and killed him who have their backs turned to Jesus and say, I don't want anything to do with what you've got to offer Jesus. And the Bible's very clear that there will be a day when every human heart is exposed before God, that that there'll be no secrets left and that God will come and and bring ultimate justice and that every knee will bow to Jesus. Some are going to bow willingly and some are going to bow unwillingly. And the Bible's clear that Jesus doesn't strong arm you or shove it down your throat. In the end, if you've rejected him, he'll honor your decision. It's certainly true that speaking of Judgment Day is not a popular thing to do in today's world. We can talk about God's love, that's fine. We can talk about following Jesus, that's fine. But we must not talk about Judgment Day. This is very politically incorrect. But I'm called as a pastor not to just bring out of the Bible the bits that are nice. I'm called to bring out the whole thing and put it before you plainly, and so that's what I'm doing. And I actually want to ask a different question than what our culture will ask. Our culture says, How can there be a judgment day? And I want to ask you this question How can there not be a judgment day? Think about the world that we live in a world of domestic violence and human trafficking, cyberbullying and power struggles, extreme greed and self righteous cancel culture and peer pressure and social. Uh, isolation uh, and breakdown in communities and inequality and indifference to the suffering of others and sexism and racism and abject poverty and 360 million Christians around the world facing heavy persecution. People can see that this world is not right, that it's not the way it's meant to be and we need a day of reckoning for our world. We need, need a day of justice. Is this what we're created for? Is this the world that I want for my children? Recently I read an article about a trend amongst young men of getting sterilised, of literally getting a vasectomy before they have a partner and before they've had children because they don't believe the world is worth bringing children into. But that can't be the answer. No, the answer is to look to Jesus, the judge of all the one who will set things right, who won't stand for this world being the way that it is for much longer, who will do away with the old order of this world, with, with its back turned to God, going however it wants to go and will bring in a new human condition by his resurrection for those who trust in him. The question here is, on the day Jesus returns, will we mourn for others that they have missed his gift or we mourn for ourselves that we have not taken his opportunity to have our sins forgiven while the the time was right, that we've waited too late and, and, and there's no longer any time left. I want to tell you tonight there is no need for you to come before Jesus on the final day with your sins on your own back. He's done everything necessary for them to go on his back and all you need to do is speak to him and trust in him. But I also do need to tell you tonight that he is coming and this is a fearful day of reckoning for the world. He's coming as the generous one for his people and the judge of all. If we don't actually long for Jesus to return, I want to suggest tonight that we're out of touch with reality. The 21-year-old person living in a North Korean prison cell for their faith longs for Jesus to return. The Eritrean man with his hands tied behind his back sitting exposed in a forest every day because he has faith in Christ, longs for Jesus to return. The 12-year-old girl from Central African Republic longs for Jesus to return. And my friend, let me tell you about him. He longs for Jesus to return. I was talking to him over the weekend. He lives in a remote mission context, and I'm not going to mention his name or where he is, but he lives in a community with poverty, with COVID, with addiction to drugs, with alcohol issues, and this week, he saw two people die in the community and one day on his way to work, he found a person unconscious from too much alcohol. And he wrote to me by my text last night. He said this, I'm sorry to share bad news with you. We're in good spirits. I've been praying with people, supporting various families where we, can, where we do what we can and we make do with what we have. In the meantime, we long for Jesus' return. And we're comforted by the promise that he is making all things new. I'll finish tonight with another account which comes out of a book of Christians living around the world today in different locations. And this man's name is S.E. Wang. He's a Chinese Christian connected with the house churches in China. And he says this We are temporary residents on the earth. And things like the worship of money and secularism are trying to persuade us that we are permanent residents. When the tension eases between your earthly existence and your heavenly identity, that's the biggest threat. He added, persecution helps with that. Even cancer tells you this earth is not your home. Hardship reveals reality, that we are bound for another home for another life. I was riding my bike home from work this week and saw the beautiful Sydney Harbour and I thought, you know, we do forget that in Sydney as Christians, don't we? It's just so good here. But John's vision gives us a glimpse of Jesus and the kingdom that he will take us to where all things will be made new. And the question I wanna ask you, do we long for it? Do our hearts want that? When we look at our world here with honesty, we can actually train our hearts to long for Jesus to come. When we see that things aren't right, that, that this world has us back turned to God, and that the only day of reckoning, the only way to bring in that new age, where Jesus is the firstborn, the heir, the one who's bringing us in, who's gone in first for us, is that he would return and return for his people who he loves and who he's laid down his life for. As we see him in this part of the word, as we listen to this, we are blessed if we hear it and if we take it to heart. Would you do that today?